During the Second World War, a church in Strasbourg was destroyed. After the bombing, the members of this particular church went to see what was left and found that the entire roof had fallen in, leaving a heap of rubble and broken glass. Much to their surprise, however, a statue of Christ with outstretched hands that had been carved centuries before by a great artist was still standing erect. It was virtually unharmed except that both hands had been sheared off by a fallen beam. The people hurried to a sculptor in town and asked if he could replace the hands of the statue. He was willing and he even offered to do it for nothing. The church officials met to consider the sculptor's proposition and after deliberation they decided not to accept his offer. Why? Because they felt that the statue without the hands would be the greatest illustration possible that God's work is done through his people. In a very real sense, that is true. Jesus Christ chooses human hands. Sometimes they seem to be the most infirm hands, the least potentially successful hands, or the least qualified hands, the most insignificant hands, but those are the hands he uses. As the songwriter put it, God uses ordinary people. He takes ordinary people like you and like me, saves us, sanctifies us, trains us, refines us, fills us with his spirit, and then he uses us to do his work. That fact is illustrated for us beautifully in the book that we come to in this particular message. It is the book of Acts. Let's turn there together to the fifth book of the New Testament called the book of Acts. The title that probably appears in your Bible is the Acts of the Apostles. That is certainly a possible title for this book of the New Testament, but remember that the chapter and verse divisions, as well as the titles in our English versions, were not inspired. I remind you of that because I don't want anyone to panic when I suggest another title for this book that might better describe what the book is really all about. That title is The Acts of the Holy Spirit. You see, only four apostles are really presented in the book of Acts. Peter, James, John, and Paul. Those are the only four. Of those four, only Peter and Paul are presented in detail. Yet this book is commonly called The Acts of the Apostles. So maybe a better title for this book would be The Acts of the Holy Spirit. Or it wouldn't even be a bad idea to call this book The Acts of the Ascended Christ. You see, the four Gospels present to us the work Jesus did while he was here on the earth, and the book of Acts presents to us the work Jesus continued to do after he ascended back into heaven. Thus, you could call this book The Acts of the Ascended Christ. The very first verse of the book hints at this, because notice the way Dr. Luke opens his book. He says, The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus, notice this next word, began both to do and teach. Notice the word began. Jesus began to do his work while he was here on earth. That is recorded in the four Gospels. 
But now that Jesus has gone back into heaven doesn't mean that he's done with all that he wants to accomplish in this world. What he did while he was here on the earth was just the beginning, Luke hints at that fact here in verse 1. The book of Acts records the continuation of the work of Jesus. Maybe you have heard the crucifixion referred to in the theological phrase, and it's a good phrase, the finished work of Christ. It is referred to that way because when Jesus died on the cross, he accomplished everything that needed to be done to provide for man's redemption from sin. Nothing needs to be added. Jesus' work on the cross is finished. It's the finished work of Christ. We do not re-sacrifice him when we partake of the Lord's Supper or communion. It's not a perpetual sacrifice. It is the finished work of Christ. His, his sacrificial death doesn't need to be supplemented by any human work on your part or mine. It only needs to be appropriated or applied to us by faith. Jesus paid it all, and that is why he said it is finished. He finished the work of paying the price for sin. So it is very appropriate to refer to the crucifixion as the finished work of Christ. It's good, a good phrase just as long as you and I realize that there is also an unfinished work of Christ. In Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said, I will build my church. That work of Christ isn't finished because it's still going on today. The book of Acts tells us a great deal about that work of Christ, which is why I said that we can rightly call this book the Acts of the Ascended Christ. You may have noticed when I read verse 1 that there is a reference to a former account. To what is that referring? It is referring to the Gospel of Luke. Luke wrote two books of the New Testament, the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. Acts is a continuation of Luke's Gospel. In fact, at one time, they were together as one unit. But since that time, they have been split up and placed apart as two separate books in the English versions we have today. Back up to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, to see the connection between the Gospel of Luke and this book, the book of Acts. Go back to Luke, chapter 1. And notice how Dr. Luke opens his Gospel account. He says, Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. As you can see, Luke wrote this account of the life of Christ to a man named Theophilus or on behalf of a man named Theophilus. He also wrote Acts to or on behalf of the same man. We know very little about this man. In verse 4, he is referred to as most excellent Theophilus. That title was used in the first century Roman world to refer to high-ranking officials. So it is safe to assume that Theophilus was a high-ranking government official of some sort. And Luke wrote both of his books to this man, or it's possible that this man, as a high-ranking official, was the sort of the uh, source, financial source, behind Luke getting this printed and getting it out, etc. So he either wrote it for or on behalf of this man named Theophilus. Now back to Acts chapter 1. 
It's interesting to note that Luke was the only non-Jewish man to write any part of inspired scripture. He was a doctor by profession. We know that from several lines of evidence and from the fact that in Colossians 4.14, Paul refers to him as Luke, the beloved physician. He had to have received his training from one of three places. There were only three in the world in that day, three medical training facilities. Uh, either the University, University of Alexandria in northern Egypt or in Tarsus at the University in southern Asia Minor, modern, which is modern-day Turkey, or most likely at the University of Greece in Athens. He was a doctor. He was a doctor by profession, but he was clearly a historian at heart. He has given us the only inspired account of Christian history we have in the Bible. Now, maybe some of you are saying, hold it. Did I hear what you just said? The only inspired account of Christian history we have in the Bible? What about the Gospels? Well, the Gospels are not history as much as they are biography. They are historically accurate, but they are not technically in the genre of history. The Gospels are biographical sketches of the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. The authors do not suggest that they put everything in historical, chronological order. They are often arranged in topical order, etc. So the book of Acts is the only inspired account of Christian history that we have in the Bible. It is in this book that we learn of the coming of the Holy Spirit and the spread of the gospel throughout the known world. And that seems to be the purpose in Luke's mind as he writes this book. His purpose is to show the growth of the church and the spread of the Word of God throughout the known world. Let me show you this in several key summary verses. Look at chapter 1, verse 15, where it says, And in those days Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples, and then he adds this parenthetical comment, Altogether the number of names was about 120. So at this point, there were about 120 believers gathered together in Jerusalem. But look at what happens when the Holy Spirit comes in chapter 2. Skip down to verse 41 of chapter 2. It says, Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. So 3,000 were added to the 120. But that's still not all. Look at verse 46, same chapter. It says, So continuing daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And, here's the statement, And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. So even more were added. Then look at chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 4. We read this. It says, However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. So now the number is around 5,000, and that seems only to be a count of the men, by the way Dr. Luke words this. And then look at chapter 5, verse 14. Chapter 5, verse 14 says, And believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Now the number is growing so large that Luke doesn't even attach a figure to it. He just says there were multitudes added to the Lord. Some historians calculate, guesstimate, that at this point in Jerusalem, in Jerusalem alone, 
there were approximately 20,000 believers in Jesus. Many, many people were turning to the Lord. Look at chapter 6, verse 7. It says, Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Even the priests. So the word of God is spreading in and throughout Jerusalem. And then look at chapter 8. Chapter 8, verse 4. It says, Therefore those who were scattered, so persecution hits, it scatters the believers. Those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. So the word spreads beyond Jerusalem, beyond just a small geographical location. And so in chapter 9, look at chapter 9, verse 31. We read this statement from Dr. Luke. Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. The church was multiplied in all of these locations that Dr. Luke mentions. Judea, Galilee, Samaria. That, that composes all three regions of ancient Israel. Galilee in the north, Samaria in the center, Judea in the south. The church was multiplied. And then look at chapter 12. When persecution hits, what happens? Chapter 12, verse 24 says, But the word of God grew and multiplied. Notice, it wasn't enough just to say the word of God grew. Dr. Luke says it multiplied. And then look at chapter 16, what he says. Over in chapter 16, verse 5. He says, so the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in number daily. There it is again. The churches increased in number daily. The gospel was spreading. The word of God was spreading. The truth was being blitzed throughout the ancient Middle East. Look at chapter 19. Chapter 19, verse 20 says, so the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. There it is again. And this is in reference to Ephesus. So now we've moved way outside of the land of Israel into what is called, is, would be modern day Turkey, Ephesus. The word of God grew mightily and prevailed. One more example, chapter 28, the very last chapter of this book. Chapter 28, verse 30 says, Then Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house and received all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no one forbidding him. By this time, the gospel had spread throughout the known world, and one of the driving forces of this, the spread was the preaching and teaching ministry of the Apostle Paul. So Luke's purpose in writing this book was to show the growth of the church and the spread of the Word of God. And since that was Luke's purpose, directed by the Holy Spirit, it's important to understand that Acts is by nature, please hear this, it is by nature a transitional book. If you, if you fail to understand that about the book of Acts, then you will be hopelessly confused. Because it can be a confusing book. So many of the errant Errant doctrines that are supported from the book of Acts today are the result of a failure to understand this transitional nature of the book. It is a book of transitions. Specifically, it records the transition from the Gospels to the Epistles. 
It records the transition from Judaism to Christianity, from law to grace, from Israel to church, from the ministry of Jesus to the ministry of the Holy Spirit, who is mentioned 60 times in this book. Six zero, 60 times. It, is a, it records the transition from the primacy of miracles to the primacy of the Word of God. This book is all about transitions. Many of the errors in charismatic theology are the result of a failure to understand this specific aspect of the book of Acts. Now, there are a number of possible outlines for the book of Acts, and I'll just mention three of them. You can take your pick, whichever, you, whichever resonates most with you or, or, or really helps you get a handle on the book. One, you can outline the book related to its geography. This outline flows right out of chapter 1. Go back to chapter 1 again. And notice in verse 8 what Jesus said. Chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said, You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me, here we go, in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Jesus indicated here that their ministry would spread geographically, beginning in Jerusalem, then in Judea, which was the province of Jerusalem, then into Samaria, which was the next province north, and then to the end of the earth. And guess what? That's exactly what happens in this book. It's exactly how it happens. The spread of the word of God in Jerusalem is covered in 1-1 through 8-4. The spread of the word of God in Judea and Samaria is covered in 8-5 through 12-25. The spread of the word of God to the end of the earth is covered in chapters 13 through 28. So that's one way to outline the book. You can outline it around its geography, the geographical spread of the word. Another possibility is an outline related to time. This one is fascinating to me. Chapters 1 through 7, 1 through 7, a big chunk of this book, a fourth of it, those chapters cover two years, only two years, a little over two years. Chapters 8 through 12 cover 13 years. Chapters 13 through 28 cover 14 years. If you add it all up, it's about 30 years. So the book of Acts covers a time span of approximately 30 years. That's another way to outline the book. Another possibility is an outline related to personalities. The Holy Spirit has the spotlight on Peter in chapters 1 through 12. The Holy Spirit has the spotlight on Paul in chapters 13 through 28. Now, obviously, there are exceptions within those chapters, but in large measure, that's the way those chapters unfold. So with that in mind, let's go back to chapter 1 and just do a brief survey of this tremendous book of Scripture to see what the Holy Spirit guided Luke to record and write for our benefit today. In chapter 1, we see several key events in preparation for the birth of the church. Luke tells us that after his resurrection, Jesus spent 40 days on this earth. This is the post-resurrection ministry of Jesus. During this time, our Lord taught the disciples about, now this is interesting, he taught them about the kingdom. The kingdom. You see, they were still confused. They knew Jesus was the Messiah, And they knew that the Hebrew Scriptures promised that the Messiah will set up a kingdom. So their question was, where is it? Jesus, if you're the Messiah, where's the kingdom? We thought you were going to set it up during your earthly ministry, and then you were murdered, you were crucified, but you rose from the dead, so the the, the plan is still in place. Where's the kingdom? Verse 6, chapter 1. 
says, Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They want to know. What's the deal with the kingdom? During this time, Jesus taught them that the kingdom would come later. But first, there would be the coming of the Holy Spirit and the birth of the church. That took place in chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 1 says, When the day of Pentecost had fully come, one of the three largest of all the Jewish holidays, scores of Jews would flood into Jerusalem for this occasion. Thus, it was a strategic time for the Holy Spirit to come. Scores of Jews from all over the world would come. It says, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. As you can imagine, this got the attention of the multitudes of people who were gathered for the day of Pentecost because Dr. Luke tells us later that they heard these people speaking in their own language, their own dialect. So it gets everyone's attention, which gave Peter the opportunity to preach the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And that's what he did in verses 22 through 36. The Holy Spirit used that sermon to convict 3,000 people who gave their lives to the Lord Jesus that very day. As we saw a moment ago, this phenomenal growth continued in the city of Jerusalem all the way into the early verses of chapter 8. But in chapter 8, a major event took place in the life of the church. The gospel began to spread into Samaria. Look at chapter 8, verse 4. Chapter 8, verse 4. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. The church grew beyond the walls of Jerusalem. It grew north into Samaria. But it still needed to go farther, much farther. So in chapter 9, the risen Christ confronted Saul of Tarsus and saved him to be his instrument to spread the gospel throughout the Roman world. But before Paul began that work, the Lord pushed Peter out of his comfort zone to take the gospel to the Gentiles. That's what chapters 10 and 11 are about. That sets the stage for the work of Paul in chapters 13 through 28. As I'm sure most of you know, Paul took three different missionary journeys. The first one was in the area known as Asia Minor. Again, that's modern-day Turkey, if you're familiar with the geography of the Middle East. That is recorded in chapters 13 and 14, Paul's first missionary journey. After this journey, there was a monumental meeting back in Jerusalem over the issue of whether or not Gentiles had to become Jews to be saved. The Jerusalem council rightly determined that this was unnecessary. God saves Gentiles as Gentiles. That's what chapter 15 is all about. Then Paul left for his second missionary journey, and this time he ended up going out of Asia Minor, out of Turkey, into modern-day Europe. Beloved, that's a huge event. I mean, just looking at it from a human standpoint, think about this. Think if the gospel had only stayed in the Middle East. If it had only stayed in the Middle East, you and I would be hopeless. 
But it didn't. It jumped continents in Acts chapter 16. It jumped from the continent of Asia to the continent of Europe when Paul went to Philippi and spread the gospel there. So Paul went beyond Asia Minor into modern-day Europe. There the Lord used him to start churches in Philippi, Thessalonica, and Corinth. That's chapter 16, 17, and 18. Then Paul took a third journey and spent a large amount of time in Ephesus, from which the Word of God spread throughout the known world. He found a strategic location in Ephesus, and he was there over three years because he was able to teach, uh, the book of Acts tells us, he was able to teach hours, hours daily in the school of one named Tyrannus. So here he had people coming to him. He didn't have to travel because Ephesus was such a, a popular drawing, uh, drawing spot for people to come and visit. And so Paul just set up camp, and people came to him from all over just to hear him teach, to hear him preach. And that's chapters 19 and 20 of the book of Acts. Paul ended his third missionary journey by heading back to Jerusalem to serve the church there. But if you know the story, you know that when he got back to Jerusalem, he was falsely accused and he was arrested. And from that point on, Paul was never a free man throughout the rest of the pages of the book of Acts. Now, it's very easy to say that. It's very easy to hear that without any emotion or any, any type of response. But try to do this for me, beloved. Think about it this way. Paul was incarcerated, imprisoned, falsely under arrest for the best we can calculate from the book of Acts for approximately four plus years, say four and a half years. So what I want you to do is I want you to think back in your life to four years ago now. Think where you were, how old you were, and think, just think what you would be feeling like, how you would be reacting if for the last four years you were unjustly incarcerated. Not a free man, not a free woman. You know you're innocent, and you know that others in the system know you're innocent, yet you're not released. That was Paul's situation. That was the situation in which he found himself. He had all of these legal trials, which Dr. Luke records. And in those, he testified about Christ in his trial before the Sanhedrin, before Felix, before Festus, and before King Agrippa. That's chapters 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, 26, a major section of the book of Acts. He was finally sent to Rome because he used his right of Roman citizenship to appeal to Caesar, knowing he wouldn't get a legal trial back in Caesarea by the sea. So he was sent to Rome, as we're told in chapters 27 and 28. And while he was there in Rome, not surprisingly, the Lord continued to use him to spread the word of God. Look at chapter 8. We read these verses earlier, but look at them again. Chapter 28, verse 30. It says, Then Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house, what Dr. Luke is telling us is at this stage he was under house arrest. He wasn't in a prison. I mean, he wasn't in a, a, a dungeon at this point like he was during his second imprisonment. He was under house arrest. So he still was under arrest. He didn't have freedom. He could not go anywhere. And he was chained to Roman soldiers 24 hours a day. Or if you want to look at it from the sake of the gospel, Roman soldiers were chained to Paul 24 hours a day. 
They heard everything he said, everything he taught, everything he preached, saw everything about him. So he's incarcerated. He dwelt two whole years in his own rented house and received all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God, teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no one forbidding him. God placed Paul right there in the middle of the capital of the world, in the city of Rome. God placed Paul there to proclaim his powerful gospel. You see, Paul's ministry wasn't over. In fact, the implication of these verses is that Paul was the talk of the town. And people came by the droves just to hear what he had to say. Who is this unusual prisoner? What does he have to say? Why is he here? We, we, we've heard he's not really guilty of anything. Let's go hear his story. Let's hear what he stands for. Let's hear what he's all about. And so Paul had many, numerous opportunities. It was also during this time that Paul wrote the tremendous prison epistles known as Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon. Some of the letters of the New Testament most loved by many Christians. It's interesting to note that those letters are filled with joy. Now remember what I said earlier. Think about if four years ago, right now, you had been arrested, and for the last four years you were not a free man, not a free woman, could you have joy? Would you have joy? Paul's letters are filled with joy. He could truly be joyful in the midst of his incarceration because in Philippians 1.12 he says that the things which happened to him actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. Even though Paul was incarcerated, God was using him in marvelous ways as he wrote and as he preached and as he taught and as he testified about the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, consider this. God was using Paul in ways that Paul could not have been used as a free man. Have you ever thought about that? What was Paul's passion? If you know Paul, you know what it was. His passion was to take the gospel to everyone he could and especially to the, the, to the you know, supreme leaders in the land. I mean, he wanted to take the gospel right to the Caesar, right to all the high Roman officials. And you know what? He could have never done that as a free man. Never. No access. So God gave Paul the desire of his heart. It just looked different than he thought it would look. God gave Paul the desire of his heart. He got to spread the gospel in Rome, even to Caesar's household, as the end of the letter of Philippians indicates. It just looked way different than what Paul anticipated. God was using Paul in ways that Paul could not have been used as a free man. And beloved, this is often the way God works. I, I don't want to leave the book of Acts here as mere history. So let's just think about some personal applications and, and how this relates. This is often the way God works in your life, in my life. He works in ways that seem strange to us, but are perfectly understandable to him. God knows exactly what he is doing. We don't always know, but God knows. It took Paul a while to see that the things which happened to him actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. He wanted his freedom. He did. That becomes clear in his trials. On one occasion, he says, I wish everyone were as I, except for these chains. He had to have held out his arms at that point when he said that. I wish everyone were as I, and he's talking about the fact he was a Christian. I wish everyone else was just like me, a Christian, committed to Christ, except for these chains. It took him a while, but eventually he saw that the things that happened to him actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. And beloved, this is an important reminder for all of us. This is one I need regularly. God knows what he's doing. 
we can trust him as he works out his sovereign plan. And if we have presented our bodies to him as living sacrifices, as Romans 12 says, then as God's plan unfolds, we will experience his will, which Romans 2 says, 12, 2 says, is good, perfect, and well-pleasing. But mark it. Be aware. His will for your life and mine doesn't always look like we think it's going to look. Doesn't always appear, come, come to fruition the way we think. That's what Paul discovered as he spent those two years in Israel as a prisoner, still serving the Lord, and these two years that Luke mentions here in Rome, serving the Lord. And that's the, book of, that's the end of the book of Acts. But, but, the story continues. In fact, it's interesting to note that the very last word in the Greek text, not all of our English translations render it this way, but the very last word in the Greek text is the word which means without hindrance. Without hindrance. That's, a, that's an exciting thought to me. The book of Acts ends with the word unhindered. What a way to end a book. Unhindered. The word of God is not bound. It can never be bound. Now here's a question some Christians have asked through the years. Why didn't Luke tell us what happened to Paul after this? I mean, Paul is such a key figure in the first century church. He is the apostle of the Gentile, to the Gentiles. Why does Luke end the, this book, this great story book, why does he end it sort of leaving us hanging? What happened to Paul? Did they execute him? Did he go free? I mean, what happened? Why doesn't Luke tell us? I'll tell you why I think he doesn't tell us. Because as important as Paul is, was, and is, Luke's purpose is to focus us on something far more important, and that is the ongoing work of Jesus Christ in you, in me, through you, and through me. This is only the end of the beginning. It's not the end of the story. This is the end of the beginning. The Lord Jesus is still building his church, and he's using you to do it. He's using me to do it. Paul is gone, but the Holy Spirit isn't. He's still with us. And although we aren't apostles, having seen with our own eyes the resurrected Christ appointed by him to be a personal representative of him, to be able to do the very works he did. We aren't apostles. We can faithfully serve the Lord in whatever circumstances he allows us to go through. I think it is so neat. I, I think it's fabulous that the book of Acts closes with Paul serving the Lord in less than ideal circumstances. In fact, you could say bad circumstances, unfair circumstances. Terrible circumstances. Unjustly incarcerated. No freedom. Can't go anywhere. The book of Acts closes with Paul serving the Lord in bad circumstances because, listen, that's the message the Holy Spirit wants to leave with us. Whatever circumstances we may encounter in life, and for a lot of God's people, a lot of times they're bad. They're unfair. They're hard. They're difficult. They're trying. They're perplexing. Whatever circumstances we may encounter, we need to look for ways to make our lives count. We need to look for ways to serve the Lord. That's what God's people have done down through the centuries. And that's why we're here today, beloved. Again, I say from a human standpoint, 
If God's people hadn't been faithful to serve the Lord in every circumstance, we wouldn't be here today. Because you see, we can't, we can't get the picture here in this life, but maybe in eternity God will show us the chain, the links in the chain, all the way from Jesus himself, how the gospel reached you and how the gospel reached me. It went through chain after chain, person after person, who was faithful, who was faithful, who was faithful. God has always had his faithful servants who live for him and serve him in any and every circumstance. So, Here's the question. Here's the question the book of Acts forces us to ask. Are you one of those? As a child of God, are you one of those? Let me ask it to you this way. If the Lord were to write a book about your life, if the Lord were to write another book of Acts, modern day, 21st century book of Acts, would it reveal the fact that you have faithfully served him in whatever opportunities he has given you? whatever circumstances, whatever adversity, whatever trial. You see, there is a sense in which the book of Acts is still being written because the Lord is still working. He said, I will build my church, and he's going to keep doing that until the day he decides, as Paul talks about, the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and the Lord then descends from heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel, the trump of God, and the dead in Christ rise first, and we who are alive and remain are caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Until that day, the Lord is going to continue building his church. What is the book of Acts saying about your life? Are you faithfully serving the Lord in the up and down circumstances of life? That's the practical question this book forces us to ask when we come to its conclusion. Are we faithful? Are we passing the torch Are we a solid solid link in the chain to the next generation, the next person in line to see the Lord's work continue? Let's bow together as we close. And as you bow your head, just take a couple minutes to think about your own life in relation to the book of Acts and to realize that whatever your life is, maybe you're a college student, high school student, maybe you're a husband, maybe you're a wife, maybe you're a mom, a dad, grandparent, maybe you're a professional person, uh, as I said, maybe a student, maybe an athlete, maybe whatever. There's just all sorts of people represented here in this place. It's the same kind of situation that has always been the case. God's people, God has his people in every nook and cranny of society. God places his people in places where they can impact construction workers, farm and ranch people, professional people, neighborhood people, busy moms, busy dads, whatever it is. Don't think, don't you dare think, well, you know, I'm not, I'm not officially a minister. That would be like saying, well, I'm not an apostle. Well, not, none of us are apostles. You don't have to be an apostle to be faithful to the Lord. Just be faithful in the place he's put you, the the realm he's placed you, whatever that is. Just be a light in, in whatever your circumstances are. And remember, God knows what he's doing. Maybe you're chafing. Maybe you're thinking, boy, I could really make a difference if my circumstances were different. Well, that's 
That would have been so easy for Paul to think that way. Oh, I could really make a difference if I weren't incarcerated, if I weren't in prison, if I just were a free man. That's a wrong perspective. Don't say, I, I could really make a difference if I, I weren't just a, a junior high student or a high school student, a college student. No, no, you, you can make a difference. You can be salt and light right where the Lord has placed you, in your neighborhood, in your place of employment, in your school, in your family, in whatever the circumstances. Just be faithful. Be faithful. Be a light. Be a testimony. Be a witness. That's the, that's the encouraging message from the book of Acts. The Lord is continuing to build his church, and he uses all kinds of people. All kinds of unqualified people. We're all unqualified. But people who are willing to be faithful, available, teachable, and be used by him. I hope and pray that's your perspective. That's your desire. It should be for all of us. Father, what a privilege it is to be used by you. We, we acknowledge that we are unworthy, that we are inadequate, that we are unqualified on so many different levels. Uh, but you have proven down through the centuries, you have proven in your word to use people who are simply available, people who are humble, people who are willing to be used, people who love the Lord Jesus Christ and just want their lives to count and want them to make a difference. And the circumstances certainly don't have to be perfect. They don't have to be ideal. Paul's were not. And may that reality really stand out to us, that Paul made such an impact, and yet he did so with circumstances that were, were not good at all. So help us not to use that as an excuse in our lives, to say we, we need an ideal setup, an ideal situation to be a testimony, to be a witness. No, we just need to be faithful where you have us, whatever our circumstances, whatever our difficulties, whatever our adversity. May we be faithful. Thank you for the promise of the Lord Jesus, where he said, I will build my church. The gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And we see that so powerfully in the book of Acts, but we even see it in a, in a bigger picture as we look back, not only to that first century, but as we look back over the last 2,000 years and to think that the gospel has reached us here in the United States, so many thousands of miles away from where it began. Thank you for your faithfulness in the spread of your word. May we play our part until Jesus comes, in whose name we pray. Amen.